You've eaten Gotham's wealth, its spirit, but your feast is nearly over. This is not my hole. It's an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. Why aren't you laughing? From this moment on, none of you are safe. Welcome to the Batman Book Club, a podcast that explores the Dark Knight Library. I am your host, Ryan Lauer. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 39, Batman, the Man Who Laughs. Joining me on this episode from the Anything Goes podcast and please rewind the RF4RM retro show, it is Tim Rooney. Hello, Tim. How are you doing, Ryan? It's so glad to be back here and I'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about one of my personal favorite Batman stories here. Absolutely. You were you were on back, uh, I don't want to say in case I'm wrong, I almost want to say it's episode 12, and we talked about Batman Venom. And I think that was a very strong, very good conversation. And you and I went places. We went places with Venom. And then I asked you afterwards, hey, whatever story you want, as long as it hasn't been taken, if you'd like to come back, and you're like, uh, how about the man who laughs? I said, yes, let's do it. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, we both took the venom serum we went a little crazy <laughs> we, we deadlifted some heavy machinery and then once we came down the high like okay maybe we should t- we should talk about something that's a little less intense <laughs> we'll talk about a story where the entire city is threatened yeah exactly i mean i felt alive and then i felt drained and i thought you know i don't want to go down this road again uh before <laughs> we get to the man who laughs though since you told us before uh what your favorite batman story is and I'd like to mention you are the only one who's chosen a a movie story as being your favorite story. Everyone else has gone to uh, comics. So you're still original, Tim Rooney. What? Uh, Go ahead. I was going to say, like, I'm I'm glad about that. I'm glad I'll take that little (laughs) honor right there. Like, yes, I still like that. It's a little win I'll put down in my journal later. (laughs) Yeah, you stand out. You stand out amongst the crowd. Uh, What other Batman stories have you been have you been reading lately, aside from the one we're about to talk about? Um, I'm actually still in the middle of my odyssey of reading all of the trade paperbacks between Nightfall and through No Man's Land. I'm actually on No Man's Land Volume 3. Ooh. And yeah, this is when Batman has accepted the help from Nightwing, Robin, um, and the new Batgirl, who will later become Orphan. And it's just the battle for the territories as they go along, while he and Gordon are still at a they're still at arm's length when it comes to each other. And the reason why it's taking me so long is because I'm also finishing up reading Graham Morrison's run on Animal Man mm-hmm. and uh, Brian K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man. I- I'm juggling those three stories. Well, you didn't have to explain on why it's taking so long since it's no man's land. Uh, we all would totally understand. But I'm glad that you also sprinkled in the other things that you're reading. Because I like to ask first of like other Batman stuff you're reading. But maybe somebody's not reading Batman they're reading something else. And of course, we're all fans of other comics, especially Why the Last Man. Outside of Batman comics, that is my favorite comic book story. I love Why the Last Man. How far are you in that? Um, in the original trade, because I've got like the, the first volume of the newer trade paperbacks. I finished that. And then when I was staying at a, at a friend's house uh, during quarantine, he gave me his original trade paperbacks. So I'm like, I'm volume four right now. 
uh, York has been left in the hands of 355's old, like, uh, I think 711's uh, a other agent. Mm. And York has found himself woken up in an s and like, uh, suit yes. hanging from the rafters. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I look at <laughs> my phone, like, my break's over. I'm like, I don't want to go back to work. I want to know how the hell is he going to get out of this. Yeah. Uh, obviously, no spoilers here. But that was definitely... I'd received, they started to release like the deluxe hardcover editions and I received the first volume. I hadn't heard of this yet. And I received the first one. Uh, there's five total of the hardcover. So each one's like 12 issues. Um, in that first one, as soon as I was finished, I was like, oh my God, where are the other ones? I need the other ones right now. I, I went on a flat binge for that story. And that's how I read it now too, is I just sit aside of like, once I start, I know I'm in for the whole run. So uh, strap in for an exciting ride because that... Phew, my gosh, Tim, I love that story. I love it. I mean, the word strap, strap in, strap on. Kind of thing. <laughs> oh my God. Like that's choice of words right there. But I, I love how Vaughn ends his stories. He uh -huh. ends his stories so strong that you're just like, ah, it's mm -hmm. like, it's RL Stein for adults. Like, oh, no, I got to <laughs> turn the page. I got to find out what's going to happen next. Yeah. What's going on next here? I forget what is, what happened. He had a small uh, run with Batman uh, issues. I don't know if it was Batman or detective Tom detective comics. Um, and I remember reading, they did a collection and trade with those and that, that was pretty good too. But I mean, I think why the last man is his uh, magnum opus. And apparently it's so good that it's hard to convert into an FX series. Right. I, I mean, the, the one thing that I, I was taken aback by because it's, it's an early two thousands, um, uh... A vertigo book and i'm just like some language that's used in there like oh, we don't use that those kind of uh words not as often anyway in polite society so that like i clutch my pearls every now and then i'm like oh my god how could you say that um but i'm looking forward to the series but that also gives me reason okay i think i need to speed up my reading i want to at least finish the story before the series premieres so i, I don't like get spoiled by something by the tv show yeah, well, I don't know if you'd seen that. I don't think FX picked up the series. I think they filmed the pilot and then, yeah, it never got picked up. And I think it had like production issues. Uh, parenthesis question mark, because I don't want to. I think that's the last thing that I read uh, because I was kind of disappointed. And I was like, well, if this thing's so hard to adapt, don't do like don't adapt it half assed. No, I mean, at that point, just leave it alone. It's kind of yep. like. How many years is there Sandman adaptation has been in the works? And sometimes, like, like I guess Alan Moore is right sometimes. Like, okay, maybe certain things are just cannot be adapted properly. Mm, I agree. Uh, actually, because we have this lovely thing called the Internet, uh, according to Wikipedia, the series is set to premiere on FX on Hulu this year. So... Hmm. I, maybe somebody left the show or something. I don't know. Um, I for, yeah. Uh, yeah. Somebody exited the two people, two showrunners left the project. So maybe that's what I read, but I thought that that meant that it got shut down. So I don't know. Anyways, this is not the why the last show. This is Batman. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, I, I think it was because it was during that Disney conference call where all the star Wars news dropped. Mm. Mm -hmm. And 
everybody was like, and that's when they also announced, like, hey, we got an Alien and Why the Last Man series coming to and FX. And everybody's like, like, screw that. We, we're talking about Star yeah. Wars here. And nobody paid attention to that except for the hardcore niche audiences <laughs> of those two properties. And that's me. That's something that would excite me more than the Star Wars. No offense to Star Wars, but I'd be excited over this. And I totally right over my head. I missed it. Oh, well. <laughs> But cool. Hopefully it ends up it ends up uh, launching this year. Uh, at, back to Batman. Uh, Batman, the man who laughs. Written by Ed Brubaker. Illustrated by Doug Menke. It was released in 2005 in a hardcover. It's been, I believe, re-released in a trade paperback. There's a deluxe hardcover edition that was released last year. Uh it's available on DC Universe, DC Universe Infinite, whichever one you want to call it. It's available digitally. I mean, this thing is all over the place. Uh, what made you decide on this one and your return to the Batman book club? Well, it, it's one of those stories that I bring up in conversation that I, I don't think like a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like when like people like I listen, I guess we're both fans of the show Holy Badcast. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people email in that show asking for comic recommendations. Yeah. And like a lot of the books that I would recommend if like if I happen to be a guest in there, I'd say Batman the Man Who Laughs and Batman the Cult. I feel like those are two stories that are pretty big and really respectable in their own right, but just don't happen to have the same cachet as like a Dark Knight Returns or a Long Halloween. And mm-hmm. I feel like they should be championed a little bit more. So I decided to go a little outside my box a little bit. Plus uh I think Ed Brubaker's a legend, and the more I can talk about him, whether it be this or Gotham Central, I think it's just a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I was starting to, at that point in time, well, when was the first time that you read this? I read this, this must have been back in, I guess, maybe 2010, 2011. Okay. Uh, I was working off the IGN.com's top 25 Batman graphic novels you must read, mm-hmm. and just the idea of the first Joker story in a modern lens, not the first Joker story. It was told back in the early 1940s, but like an updated version of that sound intriguing. And knowing that the man who laughs, the silent film in 1928, the actor Conrad Veidt, who has a, a hideous rictus grin was kind of like one of the early inspirations for the Joker. I felt like, okay, Whoever wrote this is at least clever enough to know history about the Batman character to create a story like that. So I'm like, all right. So I went down to my local brick and mortar fourth world comics in Huntington, New York, picked it up and read it in one sitting because it's a real pacer. Granted, it's only 70 pages as one issue, but I loved every single moment of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think I bought this as soon as it was released, because at that point in time, I was starting to make my own money. And of course, when you make your own money, you're going to look for the needs, not the wants to spend your money on. So I was definitely like, I think by then I'd moved to a spot that did have uh, like comic shops. And so I was able to get Batman books whenever I wanted. And so this one was brand new. It was out. And I'm like, oh, it's a Batman Joker story. Well, then, yeah, sign me up. And I do believe that this was my first reading of ed brubaker and I think, uh, oh sorry <laughs> no it's okay i i think i can stand by that and then it's funny because then when anytime i get to ed brubaker it's like oh yeah the guy who wrote the man who laughs and then anybody else would be like what no you mean the guy that wrote this 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 and this 
also wrote The Man Who Laughs. And I'm like, whatever, it's a Batman story. I mean, like, he reinvented Bucky Barnes. Um, that's probably, like, his... And Gotham Central. Like, those are, like, those are the two cornerstones of his entire career. He's done amazing things outside of that. But when he passes, those are the things he's going to be remembered for. It's kind of unfortunate, but I guess it's an embarrassment of riches that you're known for so many great things that other work just happens not to be as champion as it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I mean, he's a legend in his right. And then Doug Mankey is also a legend. He has a unique art style, I think, of like, it. Can, I mean, I guess like in this one, it's the coloring and the inking really helps. But like his style can definitely fit like with Brubaker as far as like that, you know, you know like you said with uh, Gotham Central of like gritty crime, which I know brewbaker is now like known for of like doing you know like uh crime stories uh mankey i think his art really complements those stories of like yes they're kind of like they're dark and they're mature it's not uh overly like macabre or anything like that but it's like just the right level of um you know like his his art it's almost like it could translate on film to like seven you know, like uh, it's like a good noir or not noir. I'm sorry. The like uh, just a very good uh, crime mood. I happen to agree. Like it's like I don't. I know I this may sound derogatory. But it's not meant to. It's like it's like a lesser Brian Boland. Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean by that, I mean like he's very really sharp with detail, but he's it's not meticulous to a fault. Yeah, that there's it's a little messy at times. Like it's. His pencils are, are really good, but you can tell there's still the the remnants of the penciling in there. Like the inks is not completely covering it over, and there's only one panel that really sticks out in my mind. That I feel is really like what's going on here. That that was just a bad drawing, and okay. it's of Gordon from like a low angle in the very first scene when they're looking at the bodies that the Joker left behind, and in the collected edition it's on page twelve, and it's looking up at Gordon and it looks you would be mistaken in thinking that's Gordon because it looks like Gordon um, gene spliced with Bullock for a second. I'm like, <laughs> so did, did Gordon just put on 75 pounds in between panels and then goes back to his stock yourself the rest of the story? Other than that, I really enjoy the art. Yeah, I'm trying to find it now because I wasn't able to go and get my, my hardcover first edition out of my current storage. Uh, to read this, so I had to settle for the Hoopla app, which I constantly talk about on the show, a free digital library, which is fantastic. But I'm trying to cycle through now because there is, like, there is one drawing of Gordon, but I don't think it's the one that you're referencing that I think he looks kind of like, yeah, a mix of him and Bullock. And it's like, wait, what happened here with Jim Gordon? Exist this, this does not fit the rest of this story's Jim Gordon. <laughs> right, like, like the Batman like uh, lines here, like. Some of these people have been dead here for nearly a month. I think whoever did this was practicing on them. And Gordon just says, good God, dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just the beginning. Yeah, like, that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's the one. Sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's definitely the one. <laughs> it's like, ah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just like, ooh, what, what happened here? I know, like, low angles cannot be the most uh, flattering for certain people. But, like, right there, that just looks a little um, extreme for Gordon right there for the, c compared to the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this story. So this is almost like another 
retelling of Batman and Joker's first meetup, their first meeting. And there's definitely a lot of people kind of nod to that the book carries on from year one, Batman year one. And that's, eh, if you're really trying hard to connect, it's hard to see that because at the end of Batman year one, I think Gordon says somebody's threatened to poison the, uh, uh, the water. Uh, I had it up. I had it up. I had it up. Hang on just a second. What the reservoir or. Yes. The Gotham reservoir. Somebody's mm. po- threatened to poison the Gotham reservoir in the opening of this story. There isn't that it builds to somebody poisoning the Gotham reservoir and looking it up. Actually this, it, it ties into the ending of Batman and the mad monk where Gordon reveals that there's a, you know, a warehouse full of corpses. It's not, it's not crucial to know where this takes place other than Batman. It's early on in his career because he hasn't met the Joker yet. So that's kind of all that anybody really needs to know. And I think throughout this, and then once you become familiar with Joker's first appearance in Batman number one, I really like Brubaker's nods to the Joker's original appearance. Right. I, I mean, it's... It's standard operating procedure for the Joker to take over a mass media broadcast mm-hmm. and give uh, threats to the city that what he's doing. Like Joker is not just satisfied with doing the crime. Mm-hmm. He wants to announce the crime of it that he's like, oh, this is going to happen. You can't do anything about it. And that's the gag. You bought it already. Um, and so having that kind of idea, like, have him take over, like steal a, a TV news van and have him broadcast all over the TVs and got them and constantly toy with both the GCPD and Batman, who he doesn't is not convinced for halfway through the story that he actually even exists mm-hmm. is classic, is classic Joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I love the adapt, the adaptation of Joker over these uh, now like 81 years of, the announcing the announcement. So I quickly think of Batman number one and his announcing through the media in which that was the radio. I think of Batman 89 where Joker takes over, you know, the uh, television airwaves and um, the laughing fish and Batman, the animated series, you know, he's, he's over the airwaves announcing that, you know, that he's going to take out uh, people. And then even in the dark Knight, uh, Heath uses it. Um, yeah, Heath Joker uses it in the dark night to, uh, you know, for just for the, the sort of chaos. And I think over these 80 plus years, like it's it's adapted differently. And to compare this story directly with Batman number one, Batman number one, he was doing it so that and then he was stealing, you know, like diamonds and stuff. Well, for this story, they've stepped it up definitely because for a Joker to steal the diamonds, I think like these days and though this is, you know, 16 years old that seems pretty light for the Joker by now. He's definitely developed into a scary uh, presence. And he, you know, that threat of, yeah, he's here to steal a diamond or he's here to just kill you, or he's going to hug you, or he's going to kiss you, or he's going to slit your throat. You just don't know. And I think that that it really works for the times that in this one, he definitely is kind of using this stuff for a bit, kind of like slightly revenge tactics, but also a lot of like distractions to achieve the ultimate goal. And I think that that's a, that's just kind of instantly what I noticed 
in the a nod to the past, but still kind of reinterpreting for like the, the present. I, I agree. It's I, I came to this realization rereading this for this episode is that the Joker has a lot of things, or at least some things in common with a magician. Mm-hmm. Now, a magician's able to pull off their tricks by one key principle, misdirection. Mm-hmm. They have the audience looking one way where the real trick is happening elsewhere. And that's what Joker likes to do here, especially in this story. Like, this story is a case, a textbook case of that. Now, it's not to the grandiose nature of, like, Riddler, where, like, I'm sending, I'm deliberately sending sending out false flags and false clues that you can to hide my true crimes but he's half joker here is having fun with the audience through a mass media program i feel like now i guess it would just be what he'd be releasing evil podcasts to everybody in gotham <laughs> yeah obviously <laughs> like there's an app he develops and you can't get off your phones oh that'd be funny why not Sure. Do. That could be a if they ever redid a Batman, the Brave and the Bold. Um, there you go. Make it kid friendly and uh, podcast, evil podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that that could work as a Mad Hatter story now, too. He he releases podcasts and that's his brain control. I, I, I mean, I've always had this image. If I ever got a chance to make a Batman movie, it's it would like if I, I had to tell a Mad Hatter story, I've always had this image in my mind where Bruce Wayne it's walking outside of Wayne Enterprises. He's talking on the phone about what he has to do in order to stop Mad Hatter as he goes through a crowd and everybody in the crowd just stops still all of a sudden. Hundreds of people right there. Mm. And then like they all turn to face Bruce Wayne and they speak in the one voice of the Mad Hatter. And I'm like, that would be so spooky and that's so Mad Hattery. I like I want to see that on the big screen. Yeah. I've been longing for it too of just like a cold open for a movie and they're at an old abandoned uh, Alice in Wonderland setup or something like that from an old um, amusement mile or something like that. And like, Oh my gosh, that could be so cool. It could just be so cool. Use Mad Hatter. Come on, Matt Reeves. But anyways, other nods to from Batman number one are some of the victims in uh, Henry Claridge, Jay wild and judge Thomas Lake, I believe. Although, What's definitely different is that not all three of them are killed in this story. They were all killed in the in Batman number one. So that's kind of like a, a slight difference and also almost like opposite of you. You'd expect everybody be, you know, it's murder these days. But no, actually, uh, Judge Thomas Lake, he, he makes it out alive. Well, yeah, I feel like it would just be. It would be a medley or like a cover song if yeah. they just did like beat for beat and. I do appreciate that Brubaker kind of structures the story like a traditional Bill Finger Batman story where Batman has multiple encounters with the foe. I think like two false encounters that he loses and finally catches him in the third encounter. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's like four encounters in the entire story altogether, but it's adhering to a similar principle and it's, it's one of the images that stuck out in my mind is when Claridge um, gets Jokerized. He gets like Joker Venom. And it's that moment when he's turned to Gordon. He's just like, ha 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 ha, Gordon, ha ha ha, help. And I think yeah. we've all been there when we've had laughing fits that we realize, oh no, this is not good, but this is the most extreme version of it. Yeah. We've all been in a lot better shape than Henry Claridge when we've had yeah. our laughing fits. 
but yeah, that's such a cool, that'd be such an interesting thing to see adapted in live action somehow as somebody, somebody under that Joker, you know, Joker gas and just turning. I mean, that'd take a hell of an acting performance to, to really present that on screen, but that could be so like creepy and effective too. Like, as you just kind of said there, I can, you know, I can kind of hear it, visualize it my own of just, as he's saying, ha ha Gordon, ha ha help. Like, oh man, that's, that's good. And then of course, just the freaky, the Joker smile on it all anyway, just adds to the creep factor. I just like, sorry, Henry Claridge, you had to be a victim and it was done, done really well uh, in this book. Yeah, I, I mean, Claire's was kind of a jerk, so he kind of had it coming. But even though he does ask, beg for his life near the end, it's like, uh, like you kind of feel a little conflicted about that. Yeah. Um, this, there's only like one thing about this book that kind of stands out that I'm kind of still questioning. Okay. When Joker releases the uh, mental patients, gives them guns, and turns them out on the street of Gotham City. Mm-hmm. Does Batman kill that one dude we see? Let me zoom there. The one, the big guy? Yeah. Because he just goes to the dude's throat multiple times. We hear a crack and then we see his hands are bloody and he drops to the ground. And I'm like, uh, we don't see him moving. It's, it's up in the air. I didn't take it as he killed him. Like I heard the crack, but I just thought it was like another mass. Like it was just one of those massive, like this was the knockout punch from Batman, especially when he loses a tooth. Um, It's definitely like, yeah, like you said, it's, it's left unclear. So I guess it's just, it's up to the reader on how you want to interpret it. And for me, I'm like, well, Batman wasn't out killing this guy. I think the dude's just knocked out. I'll just, I'll stick with that. Right. I mean, it's not as like, leaning one way like the Dark Knight Returns where it's like, yeah, Batman did shoot that dude. It's just depending on if he shot him in the shoulder or the head. It just, that's the real question. Yeah, so since you touched on releasing the releasing the patients from the Williams Medical Center, because and they were a distraction, which was also not present in the the original story, but it's because Arkham Asylum is not is not established yet in, in this timeline. And I, I always enjoy, I think when, when the asylum, like pre asylum and in this one, I've never heard of, so I can't comment on whether this is established in Batman lore or not of a Williams medical center. I don't know if this is the first time or if that's a nod to something before, but um, I like how, you know, I think before Arkham was Blackgate, before Blackgate was Williams Medical Center. And I like the the image of this um, of this Arkham, which is where that reporter takes, you know, the re- the reporter murder takes place out in front of Arkham Asylum. And that's just like that's a really cool, um, like a cool imagery by Mankey and like the little fog that's, you know, seen throughout that, too. And that, of course, has the Joker. He, he I think it. Now I'm just kind of like rambling, going on and on and on. Interrupt mm-hmm. me anytime, Tim. But as Batman and Gordon go into the asylum as part of the investigation, and Joker does his one by one, they'll hear my call. Then this wicked town will follow my fall. Now that plays important or relative to his overall goal by the story's end. But I also something about this kind of stands out that it it seems a little unnatural. I think. When it comes to 
maybe a little to this story, but I think for the Joker, because it, it almost looks as if he took, you know, um, grabbed, like he smeared this message in blood. And right. I, that just, that's not, that just doesn't seem Joker to me. Well, I, I think there's is something like, at first I thought the exact same way because he just did the like he murdered the reporter who who's doing her stand up to mm-hmm. camera outside of the uh soon to be reopened or opened Arkham and he has that message there and I realized something. Obviously the message is the clue that leads to his final plan for this story that he's gonna poison the water supply in Gotham City. But there's something even more important about this. I realized that upon this reading that Arkham is not open. And he, the first time we see Joker is outside of Arkham coming out of the shadows of Arkham itself. And he is the very first inmate in Arkham asylum. And he knows there's going to be more people joining him there. There's going to be more criminally uh, disturbed uh, people showing up in Gotham that Batman's going to have to fight and will become residents of Arkham asylum. I like that. I, I I think that's very valid, and that's probably going to seep into my brain every time that I read this now. So thanks, Tim. <laughs> no problem. I, I, I like that. You, like, yeah, like like I literally like did like a like I should have had a V eight V eight as I hit myself in the forehead. Like like dummy, why didn't you notice that before? Yeah. Um, we're dummies. I'm a dummy. What can I say? Um, let's see. Let's, let's move along. Why don't you, why don't you take it away to like a, something that in this story that you'd love to, that you'd love to bring up anything that you'd noticed or just want to gush about? Well, there's two moments. One mm-hmm. where the commissioner Grogan is addressing the press outside of the police station and he's still, he's nicely presented he's got these covered by two umbrellas while goran stands off in the rain and before he gives his statements to do the press which is not the most tactful and reassuring to a worried populace like gotham city and for some reason i just saw the batman trailer in my head when i reread this when i think of that one moment Dude. when you see a press conference um, me too i'm with you i was seriously like i was waiting for you to be done so i could say you know what that made me think of but we are on the same page of the same book my friend <laughs> and uh, it, it is but it's also really it's in line with goran's character like goran was never he has never wanted to be a politician he's always been a police officer mm-hmm and he, and he just, I would say he dreads it as much as dealing with super criminals, but I think it's one of the most least appealing parts of his job is having to play nice with the higher ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's willing to play the game, but he's not he's not blind. He's not naive. He knows he knows what's really going on. And I, this is like a carryover from year one of he's still like the by the end of year one, you know, it's not like all right, no more corrupt GCPD. And maybe this isn't as corrupt, but it definitely gets the message across. Like, oh, he's still got the good fight ahead of him. There's still a need for Batman and that like relative to that fight and that struggle. And so though it's done in, you know, two pages, I think it's very effective. It's very well laid out. It's very well written with the monologue and the dialogue itself. Uh, that I think that that's a, 
that's a strong that's a strong moment to where if Brubaker did think of you know doing a sequel to this somehow and he was going to plan a little bit more of that it's like he'd already planted the seeds so like that that'd be an interesting story to follow as well i wholeheartedly agree and i kind of wish he did and i know we discussed earlier on before we actually started hitting record that uh like what's my favorite panel i wonder if i can bring that up right now or we wait till the end for that oh let's wait till the end okay okay i'll wait, till, wait the end, till the end then um but Another moment that I really enjoy is that the first time that Batman gets his hands on the Joker and he underestimates him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't realize how fast the Joker is and how fast he's able to get out of the binds and get back on his feet and then hops out the window onto a helicopter. Thank goodness that Joker was able to find some goons that were crazy enough and could fly a helicopter in a low altitude like that for him. Yeah, I'm trying to. So this is why. This is my bugaboo for having to use it, like using digital when talking about it, because it's. I, I can't just for jumping around. No, no, no. You're good. It's fine. That's fine. Because if I had my hardcover here, I could quickly just go frit, frit, back and forth, back and forth. And here it's like, <laughs> oh shit, gotta go and gotta gotta scroll, gotta scroll. Oh, there we go. So now we're looking for the the helicopter crash. Yeah, well, the thing about like the the okay. escape from the house yeah. itself, where that he had the one helicopter crash prior, but like he he jumps out of the the house itself and he grabs onto the ladder that's hanging off it as he fires off into the air wildly as he does. Mm-hmm. And I I just love that first interaction where Joker is even surprised, like, huh, you are real, and Batman's like, idiot, you were you you took your mind off the the prize for a moment Joker was able to get away from it and he should not let that kind of thing happen again. It almost does near the end. It's a shame that he didn't throw a bat rope around him and another one around the gargoyle on the mansion, but I mean, <laughs> lesson learned, but yeah, I love, I love that because their first appearance and how it's illustrated the smiles that are on the you know Joker's face throughout like that. He's loving it. And I, the birth of that, of that crush on Batman. Like that's just, I, I love that on display and yeah, he got his, he got his escape in, but it, I don't know. It plays into like, but I bet the Joker was thinking about it all night and he couldn't wait to go play with Batman again. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, obviously he had his plans, but now the Batman is confirmed to be real. It's like, okay, now the stakes is a lot more fun. And because, I'm not just dealing with the dullards of the GCPD that I can waltz right into a room and kill people and mm-hmm. none the wiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, well, what it leads into right after that, that I also enjoy here is Brubaker avoids a Joker origin, but there's still a mystery here that Bruce is trying to solve of like, well, who is this Joker? And we get that one quick panel where Gordon says at the beginning about like the red hood character that was in one of these uh, warehouses a couple months back. And then, excuse me, as Bruce is, you know, analyzing the the blood of the victims up to this point and it leads him, you know, to. uh, It is ace here, I think. Uh, That is correct. Uh, But I love it. Like his conclusions lead him there in this in a horrible uh, straight from the 70s, blonde, 
blonde hairdo with sideburns and a goatee. Uh, but I mean, not matches Malone. He hadn't figured out matches Malone yet. And I, I like that the, the mystery here and because it's kind of like, we've all accepted how the Joker came to be of, he fell in a vat of chemicals and it, it turned his skin. It turned his hair. Uh, and then I, I like that we get to see here one of the last remaining workers of the plant and the guy's got, you know, spotty white skin. And he references about somebody who like the uh, like he'd fallen in or it got the chemicals had gotten on him and his hair turned green. And so it's like we don't need beat over the head. That was enough. And for us as readers, we like we already know all this, but it's like, well, we need Bruce to figure this out as well to progress the story. And I think Brubaker just does it really well of he keeps the story going and he doesn't treat us like we're stupid. It's like, it's very methodical in how he is like, okay, this is how we're moving this page to this page, this panel to this panel. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally is. He like, he gives enough for, he gives enough information for people who may be picking it up for the first time and unaware of the Joker's origins or the most widely accepted origin of the Joker. And Mm -hmm. he gives enough for you. So you understand like, Oh, Okay, that's what happened. And he's recognizing that there's a wide range of readers who know the story inside and out that like they don't want their hand held through the story. So it's like it's like two plus two obviously equals four. Like that kind of storytelling. And you're right. I mean, the blonde Ringo star that's investigating Ace Chemicals is a little off putting, but it's like okay, I I understand it's not matches Malone, but it's it's cool to see Brubaker recognizes the fact that Batman is not just a great fighter. He is the detective mm-hmm. and he's a master of disguise. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reason why, how smart he is. There's a reason why he's part of the Justice League because he's the only human to walk amongst gods upon that team right there because of his skill set. Like Liam Neeson, his very particular set of skills that make him uh, above average individual. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's such good detective showing plotting whatever you want to say of the world's greatest detective it's again it's not like oh this is the boring part where he's down doing detective stuff and chemicals and science and all that it's just like brubaker does like this next step of piecing stuff together it's it's one page and five panels And like, I just, I love that because it's, you know, it's the montage of the comic book (laughs) (laughs) and I, I love it. And, and I mean that, that just, I don't know. I get a loss for words. I always have to struggle in talking of like, I need to figure out other words instead of just like, it's so cool. It's so awesome. It's so well done. It's good. It's nice. It's neat. It's cool. Like what's another adjective? It's. Well, um, the, ne- <laughs> the next time, the, before the next time I come on, I will send you a thesaurus. Thank and... you, please do. <laughs> <laughs> or just have synonyms up, ready, whenever we sit down to record. Um, no, I, but and don't feel bad, but that is coming from the heart that you're expressing yourself um, honestly. So I don't think people, you shouldn't feel bad for yeah. doing that. I'm, I'm not stupid, people. I swear I'm not, I think. Uh, but this is <laughs> this is just such a good... And it plays into 
kind of like year one for me of this story and year one are not my favorite Batman stories. My favorite is Long Halloween that anybody on this that has listened to this show knows how much I love that. But these, but like year one and this get reread so much because they're like, they're, you know, they're short for a Batman story. And it, they, there's a lot packed into the, in here, you know, 66 pages, I think, like you'd said. And in year one, you know, it's like 80 something pages. Like they're not big stories, but there's just so much good stuff in it. And I think that Brubaker just, he plots, he plotted all of this out to perfection. Uh, and that's not like my wrap up for on the book. I'm just saying like at this point, it's not like where we're at and talking about the story. There's still, you know, the climax, there's still that final act left. And yet up to this point, it's like, I think I sat and read this in one sitting and then started it over <laughs> the first time that I read it. And I don't think anybody who's read the story would fault you for that because it's a, it's a, it's a breeze to read. Yeah. And as much as I love Long Halloween, Long Halloween, like that's a once a year reading mm-hmm. because of the length of it. I mean, sure, it's not as long as like Nightfall or what have you. Or No Man's Land. Or No Man's Land. I mean, I'm like I'm still stuck in No Man's Land. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's the smartest idea to start reading No Man's Land again during a pandemic. It just made my psyche go oh, all kinds <laughs> of topsy-turvy. But um, something like this or year one it's like okay you get picked it up and it's also not as emotionally taxing of a story yeah yep yeah sometimes i i get that for sure because i've said before i've told others that the dark knight's my favorite batman movie it's my favorite movie ever period and i watch batman 89 more because the dark knight is a special viewing it's i know for two and a half hours i'm not moving i'm sitting here paying attention to all of it and more often than not, I'm in a mood of like, I kind of want a little more fluff right now. I want to just like relax. I don't want to think too hard in which Batman 89 goes in because it's just a fun blockbuster. So I totally get that of that's the movie comparison to like how I feel with comics. And yeah, I think that's perfectly applicable here of that's why this one gets read so often because as a Joker story outside of Joker's five way revenge and then the Englehart and Marshall Rogers two issues like those those two sets of stories and this one are right there in like uh one of them you choose the day is my favorite Joker story and then the next day it's another and the next day it's back and then the next day it's the one that hasn't been chosen yet like those are just constantly read by me I love them and between those three stories you have an embarrassment of riches right there yeah <laughs> You definitely do. If we didn't, if we never got any other Joker stories, it's like, but look at the good Joker stories that we have. But of course, yeah, somebody bring us one that that can be uh, put on that shelf next to those. I'll I'll welcome it. Bring me some more. I, I do find it curious that you mention those stories, but you do not mention the Killing Joke. Yep. <laughs> it's an, it's an upcoming episode once schedules align with the guest. And I cannot wait to talk about the killing joke. Gotcha. I, I, what do I want to say now? Nobody, nobody gives a shit. I respect the joke, the killing jokes placement in comic book history. I do not put it at that level, but it is definitely better than middle of the road for me. That's fair. I think. I'm in the same, like, I respect it more than I enjoy it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I say like, like people like well, certain movies like The Shining or the first Blade Runner. I respect those movies more than I really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, because that's because I'm just a bigger fan of Stephen King than Stanley Kubrick. So I, I'm very partial to the, the King story story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love what everything that came out of the influence of Blade Runner. And I love Blade Runner 2049. That was my favorite movie of the 2010s. So make of that what you will. And mm-hmm. the same thing with Killing Joke. I think Brian Boland's art is what is endured for me for that story and not the actual content of it even though it did give us a new brand new character in oracle as a result of it mm-hmm. yep so we're kind of in the same like there i can't i cannot wait to talk about the killing joke but it's once because we're adults and schedules constantly get in the way um i don't want to say get in the way it's actually doing life things happens. that matter life which actually matters like okay podcasting about comic books has to go in you know, in the back. Not yet. Not today, Satan. So, <laughs> uh, to pick up this story, I do love the addition here of Joker's last uh, Bruja is he's doubling down to go out and get the judge. And also Bruce Wayne. I love that addition. And what I love even more is that Bruce intentionally turns himself into the Joker. And that turnaround joker shot of bruce wayne is freaking awesome i love it it is beyond spooky and i also really enjoyed the fact that when the cops are trying to pin him down to give him the antidote they're like they can't do it because he he's unexpectedly strong for somebody that they expected to be a kind of a wet blanket as a billionaire yeah and they're just and they're not they're not realizing the fact oh you're dealing with batman so the dude is has probably a three percent body fat and yeah 250 pounds, just pure muscle right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be like a you know side effect of the toxin we haven't seen yet or something. You know, there's an Elseworlds story waiting to be told where that happens to Bruce. You turn the next page and they say, he's dead. And then it's end. Yeah, <laughs> the, the Batman Joker was just a quick snap of the finger and that was all. Earth 54. Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's better than how I think Batman would actually end in the comic books. If I was writing them, like, how I, if I had to tell the last Batman story, how would I do it? Ooh, I would not want that challenge. I don't know how I'd do it. I, no, I'd I, hate it. I'd hate myself because I know that it, it, I'd be like, it sucks. Don't read it. <laughs> and like, my idea is like, he's just a half a, te- half a second too slow when dealing with a gunman. And he mm. goes down like his parents. Oof. I mean, that'd be, I, I, that'd be poetic. I think people would definitely be pissed off that it was just some... It'd be poetic because it's just like a just a, a poor schmo got lucky, uh, needed or gave birth to the Batman. Poor schmo got lucky, also took out the Batman, ended the life of Batman. That would be very poetic. But I think people would be pissed off like, no, this needs to be like Batman the sacrificed himself to also take down the Joker, you know, something big and epic. Right. But I, I feel like the, the, I guess the more quote unquote realistic thing, I'm, I'm saying the word realistic with a car, a person who just set up like a bat at night. Um, I feel like that's how he would actually go. It would be a, a Santa Claus afraid not just the poor schmo who got lucky. <laughs> yeah. So sue me if I want to get somebody back. No, uh, it would just be an average criminal that's just got lucky right there. 
Like mm-hmm. Sid the Squid actually did kill Batman. Sid the Squid and the Joker would go and kill that son of a bitch. <laughs> Something that I, I, well, what I like here that Brubaker did is enter the mind of a victim of the Joker gas, the Joker toxin, and like what he's seeing to where Bruce just gets a snippet of like the maniacal vision of maybe what the Joker experiences. Uh, I, I like that a lot because he doesn't say this is what the Joker must be doing, but it's like, oh, look at the effects of how it basically effed with my mind. And that's the Joker 24 seven. Okay. Well, at least now I'm getting a little bit more sense of this monster that we're after. I really like that aspect too. I do too. But like, I do question the fact, isn't it just like very akin to the scarecrow fear toxin? Where it's like his worst nightmare just replaying over and over. Yeah, that's valid. But this has a green tint to it, so that's why it's different. Ah! (laughs) This isn't the Scarecrow, Tim, okay? This is the Joker because it's green. That's like the vanilla ice defense. Like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
<laughs> and um, where Joker believes he's gonna get, he's gonna have his last laugh, and he's gonna kill a lot of people in Gotham until Batman beats him down like it's nobody's business. Until Joker taps out, like, okay, Uncle, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a. I mean, it's a it's somewhat of a lopsided fight, but yet it's almost perfectly illustrated because in a straight up fisticuffs, no matter what, it's it's lopsided. Joker will lose. So he sticks to having, you know, an ace up his sleeve. You know, he he's going to do something and toy with Batman, but he doesn't want to kill him. And I think this is also another good. It's such a good setup because, I mean we should have known in reading this that Joker's not going to die at the end because there's a whole history here that needs to happen. And this is the jumping off point of that history. So of course he's not going to die, but how, what's an effective ending and like their little banter uh, back and forth and stuff is just, I don't know. It's perfecto. Yeah. Like it's the, it goes back to the speech in the end of the dark night that they need each other. Yeah. That they like, Joker would not have would be not as nearly as fun to do anything without Batman. That's why he won't kill him. And and Batman knows like he can't stop crying. He knows this whatever efforts he does, he can only reduce it and hopefully put out some fires. Mm-hmm. Like his efforts is like trying to put band-aid on cancer. Like you'll never be able to stop crying. It's an impossible act. But mm-hmm. knowing that there's somebody out there like Joker means that every night he goes out there and he stops or foils somebody like Joker, including the Joker, he saves one person's life. And that makes it all worth it. Including, and, and that means sacrificing his own personal happiness to do that, to make sure somebody else is happy. He'll do that. And it's the yin and yang. It's the endless cycle between the two of them that continues going on. That's why it's been going on for 80 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always just enjoyed the aspect too. the, the good guy is the one dressed up all dark and scary. The bad guy is the happy clown in bright colors. And the, the bad guy is the one who saw smiles and giggly. And the good guy is, you know, dark and gloomy and frowning and angry and all that. And it's like, I think that's just always attracts me to the, the Batman Joker matches. And I think Brubaker captured that really well. And I love that the next I read it and I have no idea because I did not have uh, I did not ask Ed Brubaker or Doug Mankey if this is what they meant. But that next page after their fight and Joker's behind bars, I instantly thought of the end of Batman number one where Joker's behind bars. I like I took that as a nod with as much kind of deep holes that Brubaker did to that issue in the story. I thought that one like that's such a visual that's such a visual cue. And I think that that just instantly for me made me think of that first issue too, whether they intended to or not. I don't know. That's how I took it. It's quite possible because there's so much lip service done to their first appearance. And it's quite possible that they intended to do that. And even during the fight that Batman and Joker has, Batman considers it. He wonders, should I kill this person? Should I just let the Joker go? Because of so many people have died and it's double 
uh, guilt because Batman's responsible for the Joker's creation. So all those deaths, every single death, especially coming from this story forward, taking this if this is continuity, every death that Joker commits is Batman's fault in a certain light. Mm-hmm. But he knows he can't become him because if he just kills him, he's just like the Joker, even if he just takes one life. Mm-hmm. And that's the great contrast. Oh, not the great contrast, but it's the great, I guess, flaw in Batman that, like, it say if this is the real world, somebody would have put, like, the Punisher would have taken out the Joker a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Like, if he ever came across like that, like, that's what probably would happen. But it's the... That kind of obstacle that storytellers have to go around in order to create and keep the story going, that's what keeps bringing fans like you and I and so many people back to read these stories because we want to see how far is Joker going to push Batman and will Batman go over the edge? Yeah. And I always like that of, and I think that's what makes these uh, matchups so interesting and how they keep adapting and the new creative ways of Joker pushing Batman to those to those limits and those challenges that he presents to him to adapt to the times to where it's it's always true to their relationship, but, you know, adapted differently somehow. And I think that's this book right here. It's so true to Batman number one in 1940, but it's updated and it's different. And you see the similarities but also it's like, well, they're two drastically different stories. Because back then, Joker was doing it for fun and sport. For here, he's got this whole plan of distractions. And his endgame is totally different. you know. And both are definitely the Joker. Just pending the time period, there was more of it then than now or now than then and, you know, and, and such. And I think this, this story just really captures it all in such a like, short amount of time. Yeah, it's really astounding how elegantly it threads all these needles in a one comic story. Mm -hmm. That it pays lip services to Batman the Detective, Batman's origins with the Joker, uh, the Joker's kind of mass, his machinations to to take out Gotham City, as well as being a Gordon story. It's a dual protagonist story that we cut back and forth between Batman's point of view and Gordon's which is very much like Batman year one absolutely and it's a little more of that with more focus going on Batman but it definitely builds on on that classic story and speaking of classic stories how would you how would you compare this amongst uh Joker stories are we talking about any medium or we're talking about just comics um let's go any medium why not all right this there's had more uh, insurmountable odds there. Um, <laughs> I think it might be it, it's good in the discussion of the top ten Joker stories, mm-hmm. and that's including things like The Dark Knight or Batman Arkham City or things like The Killing Joke or even his small appearances in Long Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's a definitive form of the Joker there. Or even Mask of the Phantasm, my personal Batman story, which he's a footnote in that he's a very important one. Yep. But it it still has to be kind of considered in the conversation. And how this updates the formula of Joker, because like you had mentioned before, they didn't really think of Joker back in the 1940s. Like, um, 
mass murdering lunatic. The ideas were kind of there, but it was germs that was percolated into the chaos uh, creature that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams really fostered that's become the dominant form of the Joker that we hear today. And this version the, the in this book is just the updated version of that, like taking all the history that happened up until that point and telling their own unique story of that. And that's why I really appreciate it because it's not just like, okay, we're telling this thing in a vacuum. No, we're acknowledging history that happened. We're just telling our own version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I'd place it in a, I think I'd place it in a top five and it would probably be like number five because there's just some, some other Joker stories like ones that I've mentioned already. And then, yeah, the dark, you know, dark Knight, And then I didn't even consider the fact of like Arkham city and mask of the phantasm. It'd be hard for me to come up with a, uh, with like a list, but I think this could sit because of how often I revisit it and how much I like, I look forward to, revisiting it i get excited so the fact i haven't read this in a little while and it was one that you'd chosen i was like yes um (laughs) it places it very high up there for me well let's get to some favorite parts so what is like your favorite parts of batman the man who laughs i think it is when batman figures it out when he's come out of the joker toxin vision he takes out the goons that are attacking the ambulance that he's in and he grabs the police officer's motorcycle and he rides off to the reservoir. Reservoir, Just Batman on a motorcycle, I always think is really cool. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he just accommodates a policeman's bike, I think is really cool as well. And him telling Gordon what happened, what's his true plan. When he puts it together, he has his Sherlock Holmes moment. I just really love that part. Yeah, very cool. I'd say mine is probably the opening warehouse scene. Because I don't think we ever see such horrific um, victims of Joker toxin, like in any medium. We've seen, I mean, if you want to say like live action, the Batman 89, I mean, it just looks like they're smiling big. And in other comic book stories, like, yeah, they've got like that ghastly smile. But here it's like, it it just looks horrific. And I, it sets the table for the story and it's like, it is a, it's Gordon and Batman, you know, discussing, there's the alluding to the red hood from before. And then the camaraderie between Gordon and Batman. And then there's a really chunky Gordon in there as a surprise. And then he loses weight mm-hmm. in the next panel, but it's, I know it's kind of like weird of like, you like all these dead bodies. It's like, no, there's just like such an, it's such an eerie scene to me and it's effective. And there's so many, things that it's doing in there, especially in setting the table uh, for it's a whole, I forget the term of like we viewers know, but the characters in it do not know. Um, That's a, that's a tough line to toe sometimes in storytelling. And I just think that it's done again, really well here by brood Baker, brood Baker, not brood Baker, brood Baker. Yes. He broods in the darkness. He broods, yes. stories. <laughs> listening to uh soundtracks uh, yes and listen to the cure on on repeat exactly um, and there's two things going off what you said there about the first scene here in the story where a it's very much like seven where the two detectives looking over the carnage of a mysterious killer 
has done this to his victims is very like that. But it's also like a vampire movie where audience members going in to watch a vampire movie, they know the rules of a vampire for the most part. Like things could change from movie to movie, but the basics are still there. And you got to watch the characters learn the rules of a vampire movie as they go along. And when Gordon and Batman come across this scene here and they don't know what to make of this ghastly sight, we, the readers, are like, oh, they have no idea what's coming for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very effective in my book. Uh, And then what is your favorite panel of this story? My favorite panel is actually a small one, but it is the recollection of what happened when the Joker broke out the mental patients it is it's like it's kind of like a throwaway thing but it's when joker's going past the the guard gate he's going past the mesh gate and he's got the uzi pointed at them and he's unloading the entire magazine into the guards well he's got a smile on his face but he's not looking at them yeah. he's not paying them any attention like they are flies to him and i feel like that's so much like the joker where he is in a single mission, like, all right, this is what I got to do. You're in my way, so rat-a-tat-tat, get out of my way. And for some reason, I think that's really summed up. It's one of, when I think of the Joker, it's one of the first images that comes to mind is that panel. Wow. That just plays into plays into what I said earlier. But, like, Brubaker can do a lot with so little. And that, yeah, that, that echoes here with that panel and then just that one line of, like, said he didn't even look at him. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Really lays out the Joker. For me, mine is closer toward the beginning when, um, or like the first third, when Bruce is going down in the Batcave and there's just a Batcave shot. I'm a sucker for Batcave shots. I love it because I can, I really like seeing it like an image and then I can kind of build a story around it on my own. And a lot of times there is such a like, Give me an awesome Batcave and this. There's no dialogue. You get to see some of the Batmobile. The lights are on, but it's still kind of dark. It's a little gothic-y cave. And Bruce is coming down the steps. And it's like, if you only saw that, you could go anywhere with that. Of like, he's getting ready to suit up for the night. Um, He's got this mystery. He's got to hurry up and go solve. Or he's just going down to the cave because he's bored. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever you want to come up with. I just really like that panel of a Batcave. Yeah, you imagine, like, he's probably wearing slippers as he goes down those steps in his bathrobe. <laughs> and even those slippers are probably, those step, those footsteps are echoing from miles underneath the caves and underneath Wayne Manor there. Yeah, he's got to keep his tootsies warm, okay? He can't get sick. <laughs> I mean, like, you know how often, like, uh, Alfred Pye has to clean everything off from guano because of all the bats <laughs> down there? <laughs> That's the real reason he's wearing slippers. He's like, I can't have that uh, shit going between my toes, okay? Okay, Alfred. <laughs> he goes to Alfred like, all right, I have a new venture for Wayne Enterprises. We're going to be turning guano into f- a, f- a fossil fuel. You with yeah. me right this? Uh, sir, I don't want to do this. What if the Joker toxin is actually bat guano? I Give mean, me that story, DC. <laughs> I mean, that, that shit would be crazy if you asked me. But <laughs> zing. Um... Fine, Tim, final thoughts on Batman, the man who laughs. Go. It is a quintessential Joker story. And mm-hmm. even though it says Batman, the man who laughs, but it is predominantly Joker coming to his own in a modern context. 
Yes, it plays it pays lip services to year one, which is a a cornerstone of Batman going forward in all forms of media at this point. I mean, I think it's personally it's Frank Miller's best writing on the a Batman character, but that's me. And this one is just in line with that story, much like how Long Halloween is just as much lined with Batman Year One. Like, is it a hundred percent one to one, like a baton handing off? No, but it's just as good in his effective storytelling, and in that's very efficient, and not only adds to the Batman mythos, it kind of it updates it a little bit here. It's not just playing a cover song, that it's updating what the Joker was in 1940 to a modern day by telling his own origin story right there. And I think it's a really, really good example of the relationship between Batman and Joker. And this is cool to see Batman, both the the fighter, the master of disguise, and the detective. It's rare that you get all three of those kind of things in a single story. You'll get usually one really good of them in a really good story. But this one has all three, and it's a sight to behold every time I read it. Woo! Uh, just uh, copy and paste what Tim just said. I don't think I can add anything that's as uh, as juicy as what he just said, but, I mean, I'll echo it all. It's I think it's a great Batman story. It's a great Joker story. It's a great Batman meets Joker for the first time story. It's... I mean, anybody can read it, whether you're a massive fan of comics or you're new to the the medium, you can read this and it'll it'll tell you who the Joker is and why him and Batman clash. Uh, it's it's right up there as one of the best um, stories of the two. And I love rereading it. Uh, like I said, this is, you know, 16th, 17th time that I've read it. And I still I can't say that it's just like I read it the first time because I know what happens. Outside of that, all of the other effects are still there. And once you start to dive in the comparisons of other great Joker stories, especially his debut in Batman number one, and you can see how Brubaker, he doesn't just totally redo that story, but he pays a lot of respect toward it and a lot of nods to it while also kind of doing his own thing. That's still true to all the characters involved between Batman, Joker, and Gordon. So I think it's a, I think it's a great story. And if for some reason, you're still here listening to this and you haven't read it, uh, do yourself a favor and track it down any way that you can. Buy it, check it out um, at the library, uh, DC Universe, buy it on Comixology, whatever. Like, give it a shot. It's a it's a great story that belongs on the Bat Shelf. Hashtag Bat Shelf, Peter Burrow. <laughs> so, uh, Tim, that about does it. I uh, thank you again for coming on the show. And would you like to plug anything and tell people where they can follow you? Yes. Uh, first off, thank you again for having me back on. It's always a blast to talk Batman with you. I mean, whether it's in private messaging on Twitter or doing this show, it's always it's it's always fun and it's never a chore. It's always a blast like that. So for that, I thank you. Um, if people want to follow me on social media, you can find me both on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I made it real easy. You can find me at this is Tim Rooney. This is Tim Rooney, uh, at both at Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I have, as mentioned earlier, I have two of my two podcasts of my own. Uh, please rewind the RF four, as in the number four RM Retro Show, where I talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. Um, one of our most recent episodes was Big Trouble in Little China. 
and my other podcast, the Anything Goes podcast, where I talk about geek and pop culture, including Batman, and Ryan is scheduled to be on the show. We will be talking about Batman, just something a little different about Batman. Um, yes. And my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, that's youtube.com slash Through the Lens Productions, through as if you're going through a door or window, where all my short films are up there. And I'm working on my first feature film right now. It's just like everything else in the world right now. It's a little crazy, so things are kind of on pause. But I hope to have more updates soon. And again, thank you for having me on the show, Ryan. Absolutely. And Tim, if I ever, ever imply that the Batman Book Club is becoming a chore to me, please reach through whatever screen you're you're looking at and bitch slap me. Because talking about Batman should never be a chore. It should always be something fun to look forward to. So... I appreciate you accepting the invitation to come again. And if you would like to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and latest release drops and even sometimes some giveaways, follow the Batman Book Club on Twitter and Instagram at the Batman BC. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lauer underscore Ryan. Lauer spelled like lower. Uh, I did not mention at the top of the show, but the Batman Book Club is part of the Batman Podcast Network, hosted by Batman on Film. Just go to batmanpodcastnetwork.com for a whole list of other great nerdy shows that all of us, or many of us, are pretty interested in. It's right in our uh, wheelhouse. You can also write in for questions or comments to thebatmanbc at gmail.com. And lastly, if you would ever be so kind, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. The link to Apple Podcasts is in the description of this episode. The more reviews we get... The more the word spreads, and as we all know, that word is panic. So again, I would like to thank Tim for coming on, and for Mr. Tim Rooney, I am Ryan Lauer, and until next time, read more Batman comics. Batman.